Tonight, uh, we're beginning a series in the book of Colossians. If you've uh, been with us, uh, when I've been preaching of late, we've been uh, most Sunday evenings in Leviticus, and we're done with Leviticus now. We, uh, we shift to uh, a New Testament book, and so uh, I want to offer a few uh, opening remarks about the book of Colossians uh, as a whole in terms of context and so forth, and then we'll, uh, we'll look just tonight at uh, verses 1 and 2, really, just, just verses 1 and 2. And so, in writing the letter uh, of Colossians, Paul was writing to a church where he had never personally been before. He himself had not evangelized the area and planted the church, as with uh, so many of the churches, like, say, the churches of Galatians, the church in the region of Galatia, and uh, the church in Philippi, Ephesus, Thessalonica, and so forth. That was not the case with Colossae. Rather, uh, the gospel was taken to that place by a man named Epaphras, as we see in in chapter 1, verse 7. And Paul's words in chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 2, verse 1, imply that he had never met the people of this church face to face, at least not by and large. He may have met some of them on occasion, but by and large, they did not know him to his face. And uh, the location, obviously, is, is in the city of Colossae. That's uh, where this letter is addressed to, there in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Now, if you have that uninspired section in your Bible in the back, known as the maps, um, you may be able to notice that Colossae is uh, located in what we would know as uh, southwest Turkey. It is inland uh, some ways from the coast. Uh, it's close by to, uh, to the ancient city of, of Laodicea, which Paul mentions more than once in this letter. He mentions that in chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 16. And in the ancient world, Colossae was a, a part of what was called Phrygia and was in the Roman province of Asia and was located at a junction uh, of a, a north-south road and a road that was running east-west, uh, particularly uh, an important trade route that was running from, from Ephesus and Sardis over to the Euphrates River. The population of the city included both Jews and Greeks. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus mentioned that uh, 2,000 Jewish families were moved from Mesopotamia, what we would think of as Babylon, to uh, this region of Colossae, or to Phrygia, in which is Colossae, around the year uh, 213 B.C. by, uh, by the, uh, the Syrian ruler Antiochus III. And it's believed uh, by some that when Paul wrote this letter in roughly 60, 61 A.D., that the influence and importance of the city of Colossae was was on the decline, and indeed one writer went so far as to say, without doubt, Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul is addressed. Now, as for myself, I would prefer to be a little more agnostic as to which church is most or least important, but suffice it to say, that is at least a testimony to the relative importance or prominence of this town that is, its lack of prominence and importance in comparison with other places like, say, Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, and so forth. And so this short letter is written by Paul during his imprisonment in Rome. It was that imprisonment that we read of at the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28. 
and he makes explicit mention of his imprisonment here in this letter in chapter 4, verses 3 and 10. Now, we know of five Pauline letters uh, that are explicitly prison epistles, and those are uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. And the first four of those, that is all except 2 Timothy, appear to have been written during that imprisonment there that you find in Acts 28, those, those two years that he spent under house arrest in Rome. And it's important to note, I think, that there are some especially tight connections between Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those, those three letters, certainly in content, there is a lot of overlap between what you find in Ephesians and what you find in Colossians. There's a, a lot of overlap, especially as you get into the, the practical and applied parts in the, the second halves of each of those letters. Both letters also were delivered by the same man, a man named Tychicus. You find that in Colossians 4.7, Ephesians 6.21. Moreover, Colossians 4.9 makes it clear that Onesimus, the runaway slave to whom, uh, concerning whom the, the book of Philemon was written, was accompanying Tychicus when Tychicus delivered this letter to the Colossians and that Colossae was the home base of Onesimus. And if you compare the, the who's who in terms of who's with St. Paul saying hi to the church in Ephesus, and who's with St. Paul saying hi to the church at Colossae at the end of those letters where, where Paul sends greetings, you'll find that there are six names listed at the end of Colossians and that there are five names listed at the end of Philemon. And the five names listed at the end of Philemon correspond with five of the six that are mentioned there in Colossians. And so there's uh, an overlap of five names between who's sending greetings to the Colossians, who's sending greetings to Philemon. And in short, I don't think it is any stretch at all to imagine that the letters of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written at the same time and were sent in one fell swoop at the hands of Tychicus and Onesimus on a single trip. We can't uh, prove that absolutely, I don't think, but it seems to me uh, reasonably likely. Now, why was this letter sent? Most, if not all of the letters of Paul are written in response to some particular issue or issues that were going on in a church. Just, I think, uh, probably the crystal clear case of this is the, the letter of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, but 1 Corinthians is probably even a little bit more clear. There are all kinds of specific problems that are going on in the church, and Paul seeks to address those and even makes mention, hey, you guys wrote about this, now I'm going to talk to you about it. And, uh, and I think that Colossae, uh, the letter to the Colossians, is, uh, is a similar case. There were, there were issues going on. Paul was aware of it. Paul wrote in response to it. And the situation here seems to have been what we would refer to today as some kind of, some kind of Gnostic heresy. That is to say, there was some kind of false teaching that laid great stress on some kind of secret or esoteric knowledge. I think uh, chapter 2 verses 16 through 19 uh, demonstrate uh, some of that where, where Paul talks about uh, people who uh, delight in the worship of angels and they, uh, they go on about these visions that they have seen and so forth. He, he seems to be combating some sort of secret or esoteric knowledge which these false teachers are placing a great emphasis on. And in connection with that, there seems to have been a certain 
ceremonial sensitivity that was imported by these false teachers from Judaism, a morality that laid great stress on the Old Testament festivals, the new moons, the Sabbath days, and so on, these things which were a shadow of the reality that was to come in Christ, as Paul says in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And so there are strong elements also of of asceticism, that is a, a rigorous morality, lots of commands, harsh treatment to the body, and so on. Uh, But as Paul would say at the end of chapter 2, these things lack value in restraining any sensual indulgence. And so Paul's writing in response to that, and as he seeks to neutralize this false teaching and show the foolishness of it, he reminds this church, as, as we'll see as we go through the letter, of the glories of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God in whom the fullness of deity dwells, bodily, as he says in chapter 2, verse 9. And so he reminds them of the glories of Christ and the glories of the gospel that has saved them and made them alive together with Christ and has taken all of their sins away. In short, he reminds them of Christ and the gospel and calls them to live accordingly. That's that's what the second half of the letter is about. Chapters 3 and 4 is about living rightly in response to this gospel. And so uh, tonight, why don't, we, uh, why don't we read the first eight verses, but we'll be focusing in just on, uh, just on verses one and two for tonight. So Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth." just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, in these, in these opening verses, we simply have a statement of the author, a statement of the recipients, and then verse 2 uh, concludes with Paul's pronouncement of a blessing of grace and peace upon this church. Our author, of course, is Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word apostle literally at its base means sent one, but of course as it is used here and used in most cases in the New Testament, it is used in a technical sense. And as used here, it has a special reference to one who was specially appointed as a messenger of Jesus Christ and was given unique authority for the propagation of the gospel by means of preaching and by means of exercising authority over the churches. Part of being an apostle in this sense of the word was the prerequisite of having seen the risen Christ. And so Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2, when he says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 
And again, he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 9, speaking of Jesus' resurrection and appearances, he says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And also a part of being an apostle was the the working of miracles, which confirmed the testimony of the gospel when it was first preached by these authoritative messengers of Christ. And therefore, he speaks in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 11 and 12, by saying, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for I, in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, with all perseverance, by signs and wonders and miracles. So you had the prerequisite of having seen the risen Christ, and then accompanying the apostle's message were these signs and wonders and miracles. You certainly see this in the book of Acts with, say, Peter and John. You see this also with Paul as well. Those who were designated apostles by Jesus were foundational to the New Testament church and were put on par with the Old Testament prophets, which is why we read in Ephesians 2.20 that God's household, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And this is why we're told in Revelation 21.14 that the wall of the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth has 12 foundation stones, and that on those 12 stones are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, over 20 years ago, I met, or you could say slightly knew, a man who called himself and was called by some others an apostle. I drove his car once. Suffice it to say that whatever this man may have been or claimed to have been, he was not this kind of an apostle. He was not the New Testament apostle as Paul and Peter and John and so forth, as the New Testament commonly uses the word. This man was not, but Paul was an apostle, as he says here in verse 1, by the will of God. God had specifically chosen him and had designated him for the task. As he would say in Galatians 1, 15 and 16, God had set him apart from his mother's womb and had called him through his grace and was pleased to reveal his son in Paul. Paul is an apostle by the will of God. And it's helpful to note that in sending this letter, Paul was not alone. Timothy was with him. Timothy, a brother in the Lord. Timothy, a fellow minister in the Lord. And Paul's associating of Timothy with him recommends, in a way, Timothy to the Colossians and shows them that Timothy is a companion and a fellow laborer with Paul and as such is worthy of being heard. And Timothy's association with Paul also lends weight to the words of Paul. As, uh, as one, one writer put it, For although the doctrine of Paul does not require any outward recommendation, yet the agreement and concord of ministers in the same doctrine contributes much to persuasion. And so Paul as an apostle did not need to have Timothy alongside of him, essentially uh, saying, yes, this is what we proclaim, but it did help nonetheless. Though it was not required, it was nevertheless helpful that a fellow minister is writing with Paul, sending these words to the church in Colossae. And so that's, that's our author, Paul the Apostle, 
but the will of God, Timothy, along with him, approving these words. And then in verse 2, we have the recipients. And he refers to his recipients here in three ways. He calls them saints, and he calls them faithful brethren. So they're saints, they're faithful, and they are brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Now in regard to their being saints, that is their holiness, they have been made holy by virtue of their union with Christ. And this is what Paul was speaking of in 1 Corinthians 6.11 when he said to the Corinthians, you were washed, you were sanctified, that is, made holy, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And this is the same type of sanctification or holiness of which we read in Hebrews 10.10, where the writer to the Hebrews says, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. To be sanctified in this sense is to be set apart, set apart to the Lord, set apart from the world. All who are Christians are saints, are holy ones in this sense. Now, obviously we have a lot of growing to do in holiness. A lot of progressive sanctification needs to be accomplished in our lives in terms of practical day-to-day holiness and obedience. But Nevertheless, the initial sanctification, the initial setting apart from the world to Christ has occurred in all who come to Christ. And it occurs when they first come to Christ. Christians are saints. And likewise, Christians are faithful. Christians are people of faith. Faith, after all, is what makes us Christians. The first command of Christianity is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Faith is how we begin. We begin by fleeing to Christ from the wrath to come, trusting that Jesus will receive and trusting that his death is sufficient for us, trusting that through him we will receive mercy from God for the pardon of our sins and that through him we will receive the grace of God to continue to turn from our sins and to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to Christ. Faith is how we begin and faith is how we continue. And this is the very point that Paul made so forcefully in Galatians 3, 2 and 3, when he says to the Galatians, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And of course the implied answer is no. Of course, they were not being perfected by the flesh. We don't begin by the flesh. We begin by faith. We begin by the Holy Spirit working within us, creating faith in us, and this is how we must continue in simple faith and trust in Christ. So Christians are saints, Christians are faithful, and Christians are brethren. We together form a brotherhood. All Christians are brothers, brothers and sisters, if you will, with one another. In receiving Christ, we receive the right to become sons of God. In receiving Christ, we are born of God. God the Father becomes our Father, and we are adopted into his family. And as such, Christ becomes our elder brother, and we become joint heirs with him. And as such, we become also joint heirs with one another, with everyone else who is joined to Christ, everyone else who is reconciled to God through Christ is our brother, is our sister in Christ. And 
Uh, though we will not speak at length on this, there are a lot of implications for this in terms of brotherly love, walking together, loving one another, seeking what is best for one another, seeking to help one another grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, seeking uh, the best in terms of physical welfare for one another. There are many, many implications of brotherly love that flow from this fact that all who are united to God through Christ are brothers. We are all one family with one another. So Christians are saints. Christians are faithful. Christians are brothers in Christ. And then Paul pronounces this this blessing upon them. A blessing of grace, a blessing of peace. And though it is very, very simple, in one sense, what more could he ask for them? What greater blessing could he ask from God for them than that God would be gracious to them and that God would give them peace? Grace, of course, is God's unmerited favor and goodwill toward us in Christ. Grace is the fountain and the foundation of every blessing that we enjoy as Christians. It is by God's grace that we are saved through faith, by his grace that we are even endowed with the gift of saving faith. It is by God's grace that we are justified, by God's grace that our sins are forgiven, by grace that we are counted righteousness. It is by grace that we are adopted into the family of God. It is by God's grace that we are sanctified as we are enabled to die more and more to our sins and to live unto righteousness as we are conformed by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ because it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And it is by God's grace as well that we persevere in the faith to the end as we are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time as Peter speaks in 1 Peter 1.5. God has given grace to his people in Christ But yet, what do we read in nearly uh, all of these epistles of Paul that he writes to the churches? He writes to them a blessing of grace and peace. These people have already received grace, but Paul yet prays and pronounces this blessing that God would give grace to his people. The grace of God is something that is given to us and is continually given to us throughout our Christian life. It is something that we can grow in and something also that can grow in us as God works in us by the Holy Spirit and produces the fruits of righteousness within us. We begin the Christian life by grace. We continue the Christian life by grace. Paul asks that God's continued unmerited favor would rest upon these Christians and that there would be all kinds of fruit stemming from this grace. And he also pronounces this blessing of peace upon these Christians. Peace bears this sense of of wholeness and of well-being. One preacher of old put it this way. He said, by peace, he signifies that peace of God, which is nothing else but the calm tranquility of a soul that looks to the Lord with confidence having remission of its sins by Jesus Christ and is delivered by the effectual operation of his spirit 
from the importunate tyranny of the lusts of the flesh. It's the tranquility of a soul that looks to the Lord in confidence. Having the remission of its soul, the remission of its sins by Jesus Christ and delivered by the effectual operation of the Spirit from the tyranny of the lusts of the flesh. This is how we have peace. All Christians have peace, just as all Christians have grace. And this peace manifests itself in different ways. The most important of these, of course, is peace with God. And so Paul speaks in Romans 5.1 and says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Formerly, apart from Christ, we were at enmity with God. We were enemies of God. But now we, through faith, are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have peace with God. And if we have peace with God, we can also be at peace with ourselves because the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience from dead works, from these things of the past in which we walk so that we may now serve the living God. Jesus says to us in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give unto you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And this peace also allows us, when we have repented of our sins, truly repented of our sins, to to move forward. We can allow the past to be the past when we truly repent and trust in Christ. And this is why Paul speaks in Philippians 3.13 and says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching toward what lies ahead, I press on for the goal of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And because we have peace with God through Christ, and because we can begin to be at peace with ourselves, because our consciences have been cleansed and we have been renewed, we can start to be at peace with one another as well. We can pursue the path of making peace, as we, as we heard this morning in the, in the case of, of Abraham. Abraham was a peacemaker, and this is how we should be as those who have peace with God. We should seek as much as in us lies to live at peace with all men. All Christians have peace to some degree, but who among us does not want more peace? Who among us does not want a greater sense of wholeness? Who among us does not want a greater peace of conscience, a greater peace in our relationships with others as we walk through life? Who among us would not desire a greater prosperity in our walk with the Lord, a greater prosperity in godly living, a greater prosperity in our witness to the lost, and so on? This is Paul's prayer for these Christians. This is Paul's pronouncement of blessing upon them, grace and peace. He desires for them grace and peace from God our Father. It's true they had already received these blessings in Christ, but Paul wants them to have these blessings in even greater abundance. And Christian friend, as we close tonight, I want you to know that these blessings are yours for the asking. They're yours for the asking. Christ himself says, Matthew 7, 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give what good gifts to your children, 
How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? God gives good gifts to those who ask him. Grace and peace are definitively good gifts. And so ask him for grace and peace. Ask for grace and peace for yourself. Ask for grace and peace for others. Ask for grace and peace for the church and for all of the Lord's people everywhere. These are good gifts that we have received and these are good gifts that we can and must continue to receive from God's hand. And again, these gifts are ours for the asking. And so let's ask for them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for a time when we can just think once again about our calling as Christians, what it means to be holy unto you, faithful brothers in Christ, what it means to have received grace and peace in the gospel of Christ. And Lord, we give praise to you for all of these things which we have received from your hand. And yet, Lord, we beg you that these things would be ours in even greater abundance, that we would grow in grace, that we would also grow in peace, that our experience of these blessings would be more profound, that we'd be strengthened, that we would abound in the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We ask your blessing and your help. In Jesus' name, amen.